Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, recording here in a hotel room at the Atlantis Casino Resort Hotel and Spa in beautiful Paradise Island, Bahamas, where the Poker Stars Caribbean Adventure is in full swing. Uh, This is Tuesday the 8th that we're recording this podcast, and tonight I will be sharing the stage with the great Norm MacDonald and Joe Stapleton and Ben Ludlow. So I'm um, really looking forward to the show. But today, I found that one of my closest friends in poker happened to have the afternoon free as well. So she agreed to join me for this episode. She is the two-time U.S. women's chess champion. She's also an accomplished author, a broadcaster, and she is the Mind Sports Ambassador for poker stars. Did I say enough about you yet, Jen Shahadi? Uh, no, keep going. <laughs> she's beautiful. Aww. She's talented. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me today. Oh, it's so wonderful to be on your pod. Thanks. So uh, I'm sure that almost everyone who's listening to this is not living under a rock and they've heard about the Poker Stars Players Championship that's been going on. And you even got to play in it. So let's hear first off. What was it like uh, coming to the Bahamas knowing that you were going to play in the biggest $25,000 buy-in poker tournament in history? Well, it was a phenomenal experience to be a part of, honestly. To A, know that I was playing and also to have um, a role in the Platinum Pass promotions. I ran my own promotion called My Chess Poker Game. I was also a judge on another um, competition, the My Poker Story competition with Maria Konnikova. So it really was just amazing to kind of see it all come together, go to the player party where all of the Platinum Pass winners were there and see people, you know, with this dream that they've had for so many years um, come true and just that excitement. I felt like I I felt a lot more electricity than pre-tournament jitters. So what is a Platinum Pass? A Platinum Pass was a $25,000 tournament ticket into the PSPC Players Championship Plus all your expenses, which the additional 5K paid for. So each Platinum Pass was worth $30,000. And PokerStars gave out hundreds of them. And some of them were to uh, players who won specific events, like if you won EPT Barcelona. And some of them went to really wild promotions, whether it was a spinning go or a promotion like the one that I ran, where you had to create a game that combined elements of chess and chance. Yeah, I want to get into that. Didn't mean to interrupt you, but tell me about your role as the official Mind Sports Ambassador. Is that right? Did I get it right? Oh, you did. You did. Yeah, Yeah. well, yeah, it's like I'm part of Team Poker Stars Pro as their Mind Sports Ambassador. And it's really great because there is so much overlap between the worlds of chess and poker. So when I'm in chess, a lot of people are asking me about the poker world and all of them, many of them play poker recreationally. 
and they asked me for tips. They asked me about different tournament series that they could go to. And then when I'm at a poker tournament, so many people ask me about chess, how to get better, where to play, where to follow the Carlson Caruana World Championship match. So I really feel like this is a great role for me to kind of be an ambassador for the two games that I love most. So is your goal in doing that to try to bring more uh, chess players into poker or uh, what exactly is the what, – what would kind of be uh, – how would you measure success as the Mind Sports Ambassador for Poker Stars? Well, that's a good question. I definitely think that a measure of success is chess players getting interested in poker and vice versa. But also even what I see a lot from poker players is that they love chess and they get into it, but it's also at the service of their poker game. So what can they learn from chess to make themselves an even better poker player? And similarly, I think for chess players, I don't know if they can learn quite as much from poker to help them with their chess game, but there actually are some things they can learn um, to just make themselves um, better at the psychological elements of chess because there's way more in poker than there are in chess. So even if they're not going to become like semi-professionals in the other game, what can they learn about this other incredible historic game which has stood the test of time? That's why poker and chess have so much in common. Chess has been around for hundreds of years and 500 years in this current format. So new games can pop up that might even have um, more interesting role structures, but they don't have that history, that lineage, which connects us to the greats of the past. Interesting. Uh, I want to pause for a second and just make sure all the listeners know that I don't have some kind of weird fetish where I like to talk to women who play chess or something because just a few weeks ago we interviewed uh, Katie Stone on this podcast. I know that you're friends with her. Oh, yeah, very good yeah. friends with her. And I really enjoyed that podcast, by the way. Oh, thank you so much for listening. But I think it might strike some people at home. Like, why is Clayton talking to another um, chess player? It's just a coincidence that, you know, you and I happen to be friends and you happen to be free today to talk with me. But I think your role as the, the Mind Sports Ambassador is very interesting. Yeah, well, I tell people that chess is the new crypto because everybody, everybody, <laughs> into it, yeah. everybody's so interested in chess right now. There's the World Chess Championship match between Carlson and Caruana, and then more and more people are trying to f- figure out what they can learn from solvers in poker, even if they don't want to go the deep dive. They want to at least get a, a rudimentary, rudimentary understanding of what you can learn from these like game theory optimal solvers, these equilibrium solvers. And the chess mind is perfectly suited to that pursuit. So I feel that like chess is just very hot right now. And the world championship that just took place really electrified a lot of people. We had an American challenger, Fabiano Caruana, against Magnus Carlsen. And incidentally, both of them really love poker. Uh, Magnus has been known to play a lot. Fabiano said it's the only sport that he watches on TV. And I love that he says sport. The only sport I watch on TV is poker. It's poker. Yeah. So this is what we're dealing with. There really is so much overlap. Yeah. That's my kind of sport. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think a lot of people might not be aware that uh, the the branch of mathematics known as game theory generally starts with equilibrium theory, right? I mean, that's kind of what you're trying to do in almost any game. I I think some people may have like a solver on their computer and they use it for their poker hands, but they might not realize that solvers are not new, right? I mean, the idea that a computer can figure out the correct game theoretical uh, play for games other than poker has been around probably since the beginning of the computer. 
And it's just much more robust what you have now with computing power getting so much faster. Um, in chess, it's a little different because you don't have – chess hasn't been solved. It's it, Some positions have been solved, like end games with very few pieces left on the board. Very similar to the way that Heads um, push-fold yeah. was right. solved first or limit hold'em was solved first. Right. In chess, if you only have a couple pieces and the king on the board, that actually is solved. So you can say this is what the correct move, Right. Not that you can memorize a solution. It's pretty impossible. But it's just kind of like gratifying to know. You could look it up later. Well, what, well, was this a draw or was this a loss? And it'll tell you it was a draw or it was a loss. So you can kind of see now like the similarities between chess and poker in that way. And they're trying to get more and more pieces added to the board that is solved. But, I mean, you know, we're not nowhere close to a solution for the full 32-piece set. Mm-hmm. Nowhere close. Well, if chess is the new crypto then what is comedy because so many poker players are asking me about getting into stand-up comedy would you ever try do you want to come on stage with me and norm mcdonald tonight oh my god (laughs) that might be like that would be like such to have to do something like that last minute can you believe what a nightmare that would be (laughs) that sounds like a reality show competition idea like i'm gonna give you one hour yeah to prepare your bit right let's go although i feel like if you're gonna do it in any crowd a crowd of um, po- like uh, tipsy poker players who just busted the, the the 25K might be your best shot. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. I hope you're right about that. I'm actually a little bit nervous about what kind of mood the crowd's going to be in tonight, Like especially if they all just each lost $25,000. They might not be too happy to laugh along with us, but we'll see. I'm betting on a, a good crowd because I think that it's a lot of stress also, you know, playing this 25K, the best 25K of all time. It's it's thrilling. It's wonderful. But it's like I I personally know that for my case, during the holidays, I partied a lot less. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I had a glass of wine, you know, here and there. But I, I you know, met some friends. But I was definitely putting um, the brakes on it because I knew that a few days later I was going to play in this like, incredibly important professional career moment. So I think that there's a lot of people like that where they they kind of canceled New Year's Eve and said, let's push it till after I win or bust the PSPC. Yeah. So that's what you're getting. This is this is the new New Year's Eve. Tonight, right. tonight is the new New Year's Eve for you, Clayton. So, <laughs> so they might actually be excited to finally have a drink and to let it go a little bit now that the pressure's off. Yeah, that's interesting. They're actually uh, getting into the money today. They might be in the money as we speak. Um Right, today is Tuesday the 8th. And so, yeah, at, at, as of last night, it was close to in the money. So they might be in the money now, which the min cash for this tournament is like $25,400 or something I saw. Well, the reason for that is because it was rake-free, right? So they decided to put that money back in to add a few more prizes at the bottom. So it's kind of like a – it's like a less than min cash in a way. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Because they they, yeah, they put the money that they normally would have raked and they give it back so that more players are getting paid than otherwise would have, which is nice. And especially because so many people satellited into this or got in through other means, such as, you know, the contest that you ran, which I want to talk about next, uh, that for them winning a little bit more than the amount of the buy-in would be huge because I actually get to take that money home. They don't have to spend it on buying into the tournament. So I, I think it's wonderful what PokerStars has done with this tournament. It's got the whole poker world talking. Uh, you know, we have a lot of famous people down here playing in this stuff uh, and people that would never 
ever dream of plunking down $25,000 to play in a tournament have gotten opportunities to do so by winning the Platinum Pass that you talked about before. So let's talk about the contest that you had uh, to and, and who won and, and tell us a little bit about that. Well, my contest, I was absolutely thrilled to run. It was called the My Chess Poker Game Challenge. And the stipulation was that you had to create a game that combined elements of chess and chance. And other than that, it was wide open. So a lot of people combine chess with poker because it's kind of the obvious choice since it's poker stars. But there were a couple of outliers who actually used um, different mechanisms of chance as well. Like, for example, maybe like you have to roll dice to figure out which pieces you can move or something like that. Yeah, and actually chess – it's funny that you mentioned dice because chess was originally played with dice. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's not the ideal mechanism unless you like add a couple dice or add like three dice because if you run out of a certain type of piece, you have to keep re-rolling the die. Right, right, right. And that's a little tedious. Sure. But yeah, that is that is one potential uh, to w- way to mix it up. Another finalist, Alexandra Botez, who's actually like a very well known chess streamer um, who doesn't play a lot of poker. She came up with a great idea called Blunder Chess, where you um, use a random number generator to pick a number between five and twenty, and at that move in the game, your opponent gets to move for you. Ooh, and it's just one time, so it's just like a, a single little twist, but. It changes the entire game because that means I need if, – if I know that you get to make my move on eight, I have to make sure that my pieces are not in a place where you can like move my queen to get captured by a pawn. So <laughs> do you know ahead of time with which move they're going to get to do for you? Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh-huh. so yeah. So you kind of have to plan it so you don't put yourself in too vulnerable position knowing what the other player might want to do. Wow, that would really change. Like, chess isn't hard enough already? Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I really, I I thought it was just a brilliant concept because a lot of the, and this is an important life lesson, a lot of the, we had about 70 entries, and a lot of the entrants, they overcomplicated things. So chess is an amazing game with a great level of complexity. Poker is an amazing game with kind of like No Limit Hold'em having this perfect amount of complexity, right? It's not too simple, but it's not so complex that we can't start breaking down ranges and hands, right? So there, there's a reason why these two games are so popular. If you combine them and try to make them it much, much more complicated, then probably the game's actually going to get worse. So more rules and more complications does not mean better. And I think a lot of people failed in this challenge because they tried to like cross every T and dot every I by adding rules. Mm-hmm. And maybe addition by subtraction would have been the way to go. Exactly. Uh. And this this particular one, Blunder Chess, yeah, it was just exactly like normal, but one rule change, which I think is is what you want to go for. Like if you think about some of the variants that have become popular, like Win the Button or the Big Blind Annie that has now become standard, it's we're not changing that much. We're changing one thing because people already love this game. Right. right? So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just have to somehow make the car a few pounds lighter or something. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're I mean, obviously if you're uh, if you really work on it for months and months, you might be able to reinvent the wheel and come up with like a game that's better than Chester No Limit Hold'em. But it's it's also tough because you have to drag people in who already love the game and have all this history and passion for the game as it is. So you, have you ever tried short deck? I have tried short deck. I played some short deck. I thought that's a, that's a great example of a simple rule change 
which changes everything. And one of the things I liked about short deck was that they kept shifting the rules. I think that really helps players who can think on their feet. So for those who don't know, short deck is exactly like No Limit Hold'em, except some of the cards are missing. So which cards are not in the deck? The deuce through five are missing. So it's only sixes through aces that are remaining in the deck, which means that you're much more likely to have a, a stronger hand than you're used to having if you're used to playing with a full deck. Right, right. right. And it's really a fascinating game. And the hand rankings are a little different in some formats. Like I saw, I think in the beginning, it was that the uh, the trips beat a straight and then they change that in some formats. Because the problem with that is you can't play enough cards then because it's like the flush. So the flush beat the full, full house because it's mm-hmm. harder to make flushes. Right. So it went like flush. I haven't played for like a couple months now. But like it was flush, full house, um, trip straight. Yeah. Right. And I did not like that. I think it should be trip straight, full house flush. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess... It should be whatever's hardest to get should be higher ranking, I guess. I mean, that's how that's how poker's always been. Mathematically, whichever one you're statistically more likely to get should be a lower rank than something that you're less likely to get. Well, I think whatever makes the game more fun. And the, the thing is, when you can't open hands, like, you can't open, like, bad, you can't open, like, 10-9 uh, suited even that easily if uh, a straight's no good. You can't open like queen jack off. It changes everything. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I didn't like that. I felt yeah. like the whole idea of the game is to to um, promote action. Do you do you predict that short deck will continue to grow, or do you think it's already peaked? That's a good question. I would love to see like a WSOP event with short deck. I think that would really help because then people would put some effort into studying it. But I do feel like I hear people talking about it a little less lately. Yeah. So maybe it has peaked. I don't know. I sense that it may have peaked, but you never know. Uh, It's hard to say. I mean, they definitely gave it a lot of attention on Poker Go and other, um, you know, avenues. So uh, tell us what it was like. Have you ever played in a $25,000 buy-in tournament before this one? I haven't. Although I did play in the Shark Cage, which was this incredible invitational event. And the equity in it was really, really high. Uh, the first one was worth like $33,000, and then I won that challenge. It was a televised sit-and-go series with like a couple fun rule twists, as it were. And then I won that, and so I ended up basically playing in the equivalent of 150 k So I am used to the idea that, you know, you're playing for a lot of money, but you have to treat it like a normal tournament and a normal buy-in. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, Poker Stars TV show. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I I won the first series, and then I lost the second. But I spent a lot of time leading up to it. I'm trying to make sure that I was just playing my cards and not overly thinking about the money at stake. Mm-hmm. Now you uh, have a, a a number of careers. You're an author. You're also uh, you've done poker commentary. You do quite a bit of chess commentary. Oh yeah. Uh, if you could uh, make as much money from chess as you can from poker, would you give up one or the other? Oh, no. I absolutely love doing both. I think it decreases burnout. And it's great, like I said, to be able to um, learn from the two games. It's like kind of knowing – like if you know two languages, they say that it makes you so much more intelligent because now you can kind of understand like 
the philosophy of naming something and like kind of the differences and how different languages approach approach this. And I feel like it's like that with chess and poker. Like being really good at two games is very helpful at kind of understanding the philosophy of games itself. And I really felt that the My Chess Poker Game Challenge kind of brought that to the next level. Actually, the winner, by the way, is uh, Warren Sheaves, fantastic poker player who apparently came up with his idea instantly, which I also think is really interesting. That- so you have a challenge combine chess with chance uh-huh. and the person who had the, had the winning idea came up with that idea as soon as he heard about the challenge? Exactly. He said that he came up with the idea almost as soon as he heard about the challenge and the idea was that when you capture pieces, you get cards. So if I capture your rook, I get five poker cards and I win the game by either making a strong enough hand or by checkmate. So what's fun about this game is much like short deck, it actually increases action and makes the game last less time. Whereas a lot of people were thinking about it more straightforwardly. Like just the way his brain kind of flipped it, that you get cards, whereas other people were using the mechanism, which I think is like a little bit more intuitive, but it's not as good, where you, you pick a card and that determines what piece you move. Actually, there was a woman who did one like that. Her name is Jennifer Valens, and she did it, and it was a runner-up, and it was a great idea, but she had to put a lot of work into making it balanced because otherwise it's very tedious because you're, like, picking cards, and you can't move that piece, or you can only move a pawn, and it's a really bad move. It was a... Uh, Too much work. Yeah, but she did a really good job of making it. Her, hers was called uh, Five Card Chess. And she did a really good job of balancing it, so it was a fun game. So the winner got the Platinum Pass, which, again, is a buy-in into the biggest $25,000 poker tournament in history, plus $5,000 spending money. What did the runner-up get? Uh, a sincere <laughs> sincere thank you from me and a chess poker chip set. <laughs> it, it's brutal. It is, but, it you know, you got to say, like, this is an incredible opportunity and better to have uh, tried and failed than not to try at yeah, all. It doesn't cost anything to send in an idea too. So I yeah. think, yeah, we're not going to cry for anyone who uh, may not have won, but it's it was high stakes, right? To try to come up with the perfect idea. It's winner take all. And I totally understand why poker stars did it that way because there were so many challenges and adding multiple prize structures like really complicates matters, right? So they wanted to keep it simple, and I, I actually love how they did it. Yeah, me too. It, it just makes it exciting. Like I always said, I, I fantasize about an alternate universe where poker tournaments have one winner. Yeah, where wow. It would just be so exciting to watch when knowing that they're all vying for this huge prize and only one of them is going to win it. Like that's what I'm – That's I, I know it will never happen and I, I don't expect it to ever happen in my lifetime or, or ever in, in, uh, in world history. But I think it would just be – there would be something – I would enter a tournament where there was only one prize and I, I think some other players would as well. And no chopping – First gets everything. Winner takes all. Second gets nothing. You imagine if they had like 6,000 players and you got second and got nothing. I mean, it's just a brutal thing, but I guess I love the torture. That's interesting. You know, yeah, I was just about to say that humans are experts at, uh, you know, reducing variance. We're so good at it. And I think that's what we've seen with like tournament poker being around for so long. 
people have become like experts at, you know, Kelly criterion, swapping action, selling action, making it so that it's not as devastating if they lose. And I mean, that's a understandable, like why people want to do that. But what you're saying is to bring back the thrills and spills of poker, you got to like force it in somehow. Well, if we're going to call poker a sport, right? Yeah. You know, there's one Super Bowl winner. There's one heavyweight champion. There's one U.S. women's chess champion. You know, there's not, uh, no one cares about second place or, you know, like this year I got 28th place. No one cares about that. I cared. I mean, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) I know you did. Uh, I think it would, it would be exciting to do as an experiment, a winner take all poker tournament with as many players who want to buy in, knowing that the rules are no chopping, no swapping. It would be hard to enforce. I think it's a terrible idea. Because uh, of that. <laughs> I, I'm sorry because you can't enforce it. I uh, know it's just and a then fantasy. It's like so unfair to the rest. I know. I get it. In a utopian world, you want alternate this, universe. Like, alternate universe. You want to create yeah. this like gladiator style thing. Yeah. I mean, and how could you do that? You'd have to make the prize be something that was like not money, like. Something um, unswappable. Exactly. Like you could play for a, a car or a diamond necklace or I don't know. That's an interesting way but to... But we're so good at variants that we would still figure say, out a I'll pay you. That, yeah. You know? uh, I mean, yeah. I think the one way you do have that in poker, Clayton, is that you've got the prestige because poker is considered a sport. And a lot of these tournament players, they also play cash and they're sometimes playing the cash for the steady money and they're playing the tournament for the glory. They want to get that... Wikipedia page which says they have X number of breaks and X yeah. number of rings. Trophies, and, yeah, whatever, yeah. And once you level reach a certain level of financial security, that is potentially the most important thing. Like, yeah. if I'm playing the WSOP main and there's two players left, I'd say that, like, it's way more important to get first than the differential in money. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, you've already earned a huge chunk of money. You're going to be paying Uncle Sam a big check, and you're going to get a lot left over for yourself to send. But, you know, career-wise, lifetime career achievement till the day you die, first is so much bigger than second. Absolutely, yeah. So now let's change gears again because I want to get back to this PSPC. Uh, So you're sitting there, you're playing in this incredible tournament. There are over Mm -hmm. a 1,000 entrants, and there are 300 of these platinum past winners, uh-huh. right? So that means that roughly 30% of the field is comprised of people who have not bought in, right? True, although I will say some of the platinum and past winners were extremely strong players, but you could say maybe 20% who would never play in a 25K. But also some of the people who bought in would never normally play in a 25K. Right, but it was so, because it was this one, because not yeah. only were they going to get a chance to compete against the platinum past winners and just be in this huge tournament, but also PokerStars added $1 million cash to the first place prize which makes it even you know that much more i think i heard it was six million or something like that five five or six million exactly and that is so huge so yes it's rake free there's a million added to first so it's there's a lot of incentives for players who would normally not play in a 25k to play so of course that's why there's tremendous value and also it's the bahamas in january and yeah it's hard to beat (laughs) the conditions here are absolutely fabulous i mean poker stars did such a fantastic job. I mean, I am an ambassador, so, you know, you could take this with a grain of salt. But I also have played in a lot of tournaments and not gone on about this. 
So I, I'll say it was just a wonderful experience. The dealers, the temperature in the room, like just everything felt like very much like what you would want it to be at the WSOP. And it all, sometimes can't be just because there's so many people. Yeah. And so many different things happening at once. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it just felt like this is it. This is the tournament of the decade. Many century. players said that they felt that this event had a main event feel to it. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, beyond. I'd say yeah. even beyond that to me. Um, that said, when I sat down at my table, I, um, you know, coming into the day, I one thing I promised myself, I was like, Jen, if you get a table draw that's not amazing, I want you to have the positive approach because it's all about positivity when you play. It's like... Um, at the end of the day, when you're at home, you can complain about it. But when you play, you have to have that mindset that whatever table you have is good because you're at it. Mm. And I think that the whining about people about their table draws is extremely destructive. I don't think people should do it. And I don't think we should, uh, if we're trying to coach people to become better players, I don't think we should instill fear in them that if they're at like a bad table, somehow they're going to do poorly. Because it's just one way of getting lucky or unlucky in poker and you never want to feel unlucky because that is a terrible mindset. But I'm sure you can imagine where I'm going with this. Yeah, it sounds like you didn't have a great table draw. <laughs> but I, I was thinking I like reverse jinxed myself because yeah. as I was going to the table, I was like, I hope I get good players because I would have just like, I've been studying so hard and I'm like, I'm, I'm getting in there. And of course, I didn't really hope that. I was mm. like, it's like a win-win, right? Right. Like kind of like you go to a party and... It's crowded and it's really fun to dance. Or you go to a party and there's almost no one there, but you get first dibs on the food and right. great conversation. So, like, yeah. to me, it was like that. It's like one way it'll be great because it's amazing value and um, I'll have a lot of fun. And the other way, I'll learn a lot. So, so this class is half full regardless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, how, that's what I was thinking. And I got there and it was... Um, a lot of really elite players. There was Ankush, Simon Deadman, Ryan D'Angelo, Kenny, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name, Holly Art, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was a wonderful tournament and it was literally just the luck of the draw because I looked around at other tables and I didn't recognize that many faces. Uh, but yeah, my attitude was like, okay, let's let's buckle up and, and strap in and this is going to be interesting to see how these players play. And, you know, it's a deep structure, so... Yeah, you started um, with 60,000 chips, and what were the blinds in the beginning? Do you remember? Yeah, it was a 100-200 with the big blind Annie structure. Right, so it started with the big blind Annie from the very first hand? Exactly, and you actually played... We played that for two hours, actually. So it was kind of like WSOP-esque in that way. And then, then they started going up in hour increments. Okay, but the first level was a full two hours. Well, kind of. They, they called it level one and two, but it was the same thing. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So uh, as you're sitting there at this uh, tough table and you're keeping your positive mindset, um, did, yeah. you, did you at least have a, a – is there a good seat to be at at that table? Is there uh, – who's the most aggressive player at the table and where were you in relation to that player? Most aggressive? Probably Ankush. I feel like he'd probably take the biggest exploits and try to like – like there were some amazing world-class players there, but I feel like he'd probably be the one that would take the most exploits, but I – think that, yeah, I mean, he's probably three betting the most, but also I don't really see his cards. And when he, all of his cards and the time, a few of the times that he showed down, he really did have good hands. So he could so, have just been running hot. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, he was playing great, of course. But I'm what I'm trying to say is I'm not sure that anybody was there trying to uh, three-bet more than normal or take any kind of hard exploits. I think people were probably playing aggressively but kind of in line with their normal strategy. And uh, if, they, if they did deviate from that strategy, that would actually be bad because the other pros would notice and then they would make money from them. So I, I especially where... Uh, where Ankush was, the run at once pro was directly to his left, the heads up pro. And then um, Simon was a couple seats over. I just, it didn't seem like a situation where Ankush was going to just go like absolutely nuts. Like, you know, he probably had his ranges and maybe added a few hands in there, you know? Right. But no yeah. one really deviated too far from what they would generally consider like the GTO. Well, yeah, because that's already very aggressive. I mean, it's already, it's already, you know, correct to be pretty aggressive. So it's like, you know, I I think that uh, there wasn't a reason at this table to like, you know, turn uh, 20% into 30% in a situation, right? So, yeah. And uh, doing so, as you said, we've been talking about this on the on the podcast quite a bit, doing so turning 20% into 30% would actually be a terrible idea because your play your opponents will not be exploited. Um, I mean, it might work short term and maybe it would be fine in certain spots. Like if you had like a live read, like I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. It could be that like if you like, uh, I don't know which of these players are more into live reads. I believe uh, Simon Dedman has tweeted something about, you know, seeing both sides and definitely having live reads. And I, I, I feel like from what I've seen of Ankush, I could see the same from him. But I'm not saying like that I don't believe somebody might have picked up a tell and then three bet a hand that they wouldn't. I just don't think people were going bananas right. or like wackadoo. I, it seems like the kind of table where going bananas would be a mistake. Yeah, in, up to a point. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, there was a lot of three betting, but it didn't. It seemed like people were pretty in line with their bluff ranges. I Kenny uh, did seem to open them. I mean, he folded a few buttons. You know, I three bet him a couple times and he had to fold the button, but that that doesn't mean that he was opening eighty percent. Uh, I if I had to guess, I guess he was opening more than fifty percent though. I guess he was maybe opening a little bit more, like sixty-ish. From the button. Yeah, which is a little bit wider than you're supposed to. And maybe that's because, you know, I, um, I, there was a one player um, from the United States who seemed good, but he didn't have the credentials of the other players at the table. And then I don't think Kenny knew very much about me either. So I would guess he was opening a little bit wider than like the 50-ish percent that, you know, he, 50, maybe 60, 65, something like that. Yeah. But I don't think he was, he, he was clearly wasn't opening 100% of hands because he, uh, he folded, he folded a couple button. buttons. Yeah. So Kenny, two to your right. So when you're in the big... No, line, no, Kenny was on my right. Oh, he's on your immediate right. So yeah. you were in the small blind. Yeah, you're when I was in the small blind. Uh-huh, That's what so, I was thinking about. When he was in the button, I was in the small right, blind. Right, right, right. Yeah. So then when that was happening, you, uh, you said you three bet him a, a few times, and did you just do that with your normal range, or did you make adjustments based on the fact that you kind of observed that he may have been opening a little bit wider than? Um, actually, I I feel like I used a, a range that's pretty aggressive, but like appropriately aggressive. I didn't. I wasn't like reaching into something completely random, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I wasn't trying to do it with like ace five off or something like that, right. you know. It was like the kind of hands that you would expect to do it with in that spot, like eights and jack ten suited, like hands that are are strong. And you you know you want to, um, you know, just to try to uh, three bet immediately. 
against somebody who's potentially opening too wide. But even if he wasn't opening too wide, would still potentially be candidates. Right, and they're going know? to be uh, playable hands that exactly you'll be, you'll be comfortable out of position in a somewhat bloated pot because they flop well, or you could just kind of figure out where you're at. Yeah, because they're just so good, and yeah. you know, you have to if you're even if you're not opening sixty percent, even if you're only opening fifty percent, he has to defend so many hands there. So it's like, yeah. you know, it's yeah, it's not in position against the three bet. He's going to be calling a lot. Yeah, he has to call a lot, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to be too stressed about that to be honest. Like yeah. to me, actually, one I think improvement has my game lately is that I'm not really as stressed about three bet pots because the ranges are often more defined. So I and I've studied them a lot and they're heads up so they're easier to study. The ones which confuse me are like multi-way spots with like weird raises because those are kind of unstudyable and you really just have to go to your basic poker skills, which is reading people, reading the situation, game flow, and it's a kind of unteachable in a way. I think it's that's something you just need experience for. So, so those are the spots where I sometimes feel like uncomfortable when, you know, with all the stuff I have going on, I don't get to play as much as I'd like to. But, oh, boy, do I put the studying hours in. I just love studying the theory of the game. So when it's like the three-bet pot, I'm like, okay, this is cool. I've had this up on my computer. Right. <laughs> so know? this is something that uh, came up with my other chess-playing friend, uh, Katie, that uh, studying – spots that you know you're going to get into is uh something that you enjoy and i wonder how much of that is correlated with your love of chess because of course in chess you study you know different situations and and spots i mean is it very similar um yeah i do feel like it's pretty similar to chess you look for spots that are going to come up a lot i think that's something i learned from chess like you might be really interested in a certain spot in chess, like suppose it's just like uh, the wing gambit or something. And it's a variation of the Sicilian defense. And well, actually, that's not a good example. No, no, that's a bad example. Sorry. Um, that's okay. Hardly anyone listening okay. will know what those things are. But anyway. whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Chess is a new crypto, man. People might, know, yeah, they are. They're getting might, into it. I gotcha. People I gotcha. might know. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is you might like look at like some, some sideline of the dragon defense, mm. right? That white only plays once in a while. If you're spending lots and lots of time on that and you're rarely going to get it, then you might be enjoying yourself because it's such a complicated line with so many beautiful sacrifices. But let's be serious. Like this is because you enjoy studying it, not because it's going to come up a lot. And I right. feel like the poker can be the same way. Where, sure. Like if I learned yeah. how to perfectly play a royal flush on the flop and I am the best in the world at playing a flopped royal flush, uh, that's like a lot of effort that I would have to go through to become the world's greatest flopped royal flush player. But how many opportunities will I actually get to, to actually employ my incredible talent for playing that exact Situation. I'm much better off dedicating the same hours and trying to figure out how to play my range from out of position in pots that I've been the pre-flop three better from the small blind versus a standard opening range for the button. 
Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. But I am going to be scared when I ha- when I see a flop of Ace King Queen of Hearts against you now. <laughs> I'm the greatest. No, <laughs> I, mean, I had to stay you, away. You, you have you can't beat me in that situation. So just give up. You know, it's over. But I mean, one example is this: you got limited time. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this pod. Like I'm. I'm a mom, I'm an author, I'm a commentator, so I want my studying time to be efficient. So the types of stuff that I'll study a lot are like, yeah, um, three-bet pots because there's a lot of money in the pot and people like to three-bet a lot. So I might look at small bind versus button three-bet pot. I'll look at like hijack versus cutoff three-bet pot and like study like some typical ranges and some different flops with that and different SPRs and like... That's really useful because it comes up a lot. I might study a little bit less frequently, for instance, early position opens and big blind three bets because it just doesn't happen very often. I mean, honestly, even in a table of wizards that I had, there was not one big blind. Okay, there was one. There was one big blind three bet for value at a pretty shallow stack depth. But there were very, very few um, three bets from the big blind because – I don't know. People are probably under three bet from the big blind because you have to have like a really good randomization strategy to do it because there's a lot of hands where you're like supposed to be three betting like some of the time and usually flatting and like people um, have trouble with that because we're not good at randomizing. So even the best players of the world. And then there's always this little birdie in your head who says like, hey, you know, why not just keep the variance a little low? This is a tough table at day one of this 25K. So like if I'm supposed to randomize anyway... And why randomize to more aggressive in this exact spot? Uh, so when I'm you, you, you hear what I'm trying to say, like that you would, end up not randomizing at all. Exactly. But the whole point of this discussion was actually to say that that would be a spot that I wouldn't study. Like that wouldn't make my short list. Like EP opens big blind three bats. I just if I had enough time, I would. But I I would just skip it because I don't have any idea what people are three betting with from the big blind because people are bad at randomizing. So. I would get I get I would get really confused and whatever I put in to the solver would probably be like just totally off base anyway like it would just be like some random guess. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's one where maybe in the current poker climate I would I would go more off of feel, <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you'd probably be okay doing so because yeah. as you mentioned like almost none of us are three bet bluffing as much as we theoretically should be from that position in that situation because we just we don't balance our ranges there i mean everybody just flats that's what i've seen i mean i know there are some elite players who have taken advantage of this and as an exploit they over three bet from the big blind but i gotta tell you i have gotten it to tables with elite players and i have not observed this that frequently yet now it could be that it's situational like i said that it's um, if they're playing at a tough table and it's the day one of a 25K where they might get a set better table the next day and they don't think people are out of line with their ranges, maybe there's like a very specific reason, but I just haven't seen it a lot. And I haven't seen it either. And you've played with a lot of elite players at your yeah, tables too. Yeah. yeah. So but maybe not the super elite. I feel like that's the thing. Like, you know, the uh, I, there's always somebody who's one step ahead. Yeah. You know? I mean, how elite can we get? Super elite, extra premium. <laughs> Platinum elite. Yeah, I mean, best in the world? No. But yeah, I mean, generally speaking, your opponents, even in a a tournament of this magnitude, are not three betting very often in that situation. So again, studying it uh, until, you know, your brain hurts would kind of be not the best use of your time because 
How often will it even come up in practice? Obviously, if you had endless time, you could study every possible thing, and that's what computers do. Right. Exactly, exactly. And you'd be guessing at the ranges. I think that's sure. the other problem. That's like the it, problem, yeah. Yeah, you'd be yeah. guessing, are they using wheel aces yeah. for this, or yeah. they're using this, or that, or whatever. So, well, this yeah. has been a fascinating theoretical discussion, but I want to get practical, and let's talk about, I'm sure you must have a hand or two that you can uh, talk us through. Yeah, sure. I mean, I had... table. Yeah, let's see. I had one... Well, there wasn't a three-bet pot that I lost a lot of chips on. I had... Um, Spoiler alert, she's going to lose this one. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I, I already posted it on my Instagram anyway. That's all right. Everyone's following your Instagram. But I didn't actually give the whole hand history on my Instagram. I okay. just was like, ah, this is an example of a hand. Uh, so I had, um, I, oh, should I tell you my hand or not? What do you do? Yeah, either way. I, okay, well, um, I, a yes or no. Is that a yes or no? Let's say yes. Okay, gotcha. Hand. All right. So... Kenny opens the hijack, and we're at a fifty. I, I just lost the, the background to this. I just lost a, a pot against Ankush, where I was the button and he was the big blind, and I three barreled. Mm-hmm. Um, so I lost a decent amount of chips. I st- I came into the it, we, it was the first hand after break, and I came into it with like sixty three or sixty five, and at this point I had like fifty five or something. Right? Okay, so then. What level was this? Do you remember what the blind? Yeah, was? this was a two, maybe I had closer to fifty, somewhere between like fifty and fifty three, I believe, and it was a two fifty five hundred. Uh, so with the five hundred big blind, yeah, AMT. exactly. So most people were making the twelve hundred raise size, I believe. Okay, and your yeah. stack was about my mine was the effective stack, and I had about fifty two fifty. Yeah. Fifty-two thousand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. I so we're yeah, made. we're like a hundred big blinds okay. deep. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So with 50... otherwise, it wouldn't be a very interesting three bet pot. <laughs> well, I was like, yeah, how's this one going? I just have it in how's there. going to go? All right. So uh, the action folds to Kenny Haller or Hallier. Yes. Uh, the Belgian. Pro, yeah, exactly. And uh, he opens to what? Twelve hundred. Twelve hundred. I make it four K with uh, Ace King in the cutoff. Okay, so we're in the cutoff with Ace King, and does it fold back to Kenny? It does, and he flats. Okay, so now we're in position with Ace King, with a pretty deep stack. He's got us covered, and the flop is King Seven Seven. Okay, Rainbow King Seven Seven Rainbow, and there's about how much in the pot now? Let's do the math. About almost ten k. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to use a round number, but yeah. it's it's really more like. It's more that's like nine ninety three, but we can just say ten k. Okay, let's call it ten k. And he checks. He checks, yes. And now you know I, I did a lot of work on like SPR and like bet bet jamming because I wanted to like uh, be like more fluent in these spots. Like know like what you bet on the flop, what you bet on the turn, then jam the river. And so I was ready for my thirty five percent pot bet. So I bet thirty five hundred. Okay. So now you you told us you've done a lot of work about bet bet jamming. So what is your SPR on this flop? It's it's about five. Okay, yeah. so we're right around five. And are we really comfortable uh, getting an SPR? Like we're looking to get our stack. Oh maybe? gosh, yes. Okay, I mean, good. well, spoiler alert: not always, but uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm ready to go bet bet jam. Yeah, absolutely. You gotta. I mean, you can't be intimidated by the fact that it's the PC, PSPC Players Championship for twenty five thousand right. dollars. You gotta get your value. If you're not, I always tell people in the study of poker theory, you study the value theory first because you can't understand bluffs if you don't understand what you're betting for value. So there's so many spots where I hear people talking about these awesome bluffs they made with like a good blocker or something, and it's like 
you ask them what they're jamming there for value and they're like, uh, well, it's like, okay, at some point that works for you for now, but at some point that's going to be a problem that you know what you're bluffing with and you don't know what your minimum value bet is. Right. So that's so going to be like a big flop, problem. I'm guessing that some players would want to have hands that block your combina- your combos that could have a seven. But uh, how many sevens do you have when you three bet pre? You know, a few because I am on the cutoff. So, you know, I I and that's, I might not be flatting as wide as I if I were on the button. So I, I have some seven X's, like a seven suited or seven eight suited some percentage of the time, that kind of stuff, you know. Right. But but he how many sevens does he have? Right. We're kind of like similar. He might flat the I mean, I think he would flat because we're deep enough. I think he would flat a lot of those same exact hands. He's being offered a pretty good price to call with like a suited eight seven or seven six. I think maybe even a suited ace seven, although that's a little loose. Right, but I think there's still the sevens that he's going to be flying yeah, with. For exactly. Sure. There are some. Yeah. So, but I mean, at the end of the Pocket day. Pocket sevens? Well, obviously. <laughs> yeah, if he flopped quads, good for him. I mean, we can't worry about everything. Right? No, that didn't happen. So, uh, if we, yeah, and I don't, I don't know what exactly he had. Uh, I haven't read your post yet so i don't know exactly what you end up losing i actually didn't give the hand away in the post i just was like actually my my post was just to talk about what we started this conversation about looking at the positive side of being at a tough table and i just mentioned this i just summarized this hand without actually giving all the details now i think a lot of players might say my stack is too deep to get all in with just a king here oh they'd be wrong my spr is five then when i get it all in i'm going to always be beat and you don't think there's any merit to that? Um, well, you're, you're saying like as an exploit that if they're never getting called by king queen and king jack suited and king ten suited, well, you know all the king king suited. Like, does that mean that they actually should shut down at some point with ace king and check behind and uh, just control the pot a little bit because our hand is so it's it's very strong. But is it strong enough? Is the is the caller? Are we getting called? Are we always getting action? Are we getting enough action from worse kings and maybe even some other hands to make risking our whole stack in this spot uh, the right play? Well, in in theoretical terms, I can tell you, yes, absolutely, it's correct. Um, In terms of certain dynamics, maybe at certain tournaments against certain players, uh, you could could be right. Although I do feel like uh, it's, it's not like it's, People get really excited about having top pairs, so I think there's not that many player types. And he's going to want to have. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but he's going to want to have bluff catchers in yeah. his range, and so because of that dynamic, like he's he can't be folding too many kings to you. So if he also has a king, you 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 are very likely to get action from that from that hand. Oh, against him, absolutely. I mean, I'm just saying you're you're trying to describe an opponent type where you can't you can never get three streets of value with for ace king and I'm I'm not I don't want to be dogmatic. I think you're probably right that such player types absolutely do exist. I'm just this was not the table where that player type was. Yeah, the yeah. important question is yeah. uh about this table yeah. and against this particular opponent in this particular spot. Uh I do think that some players might uh make the decision to just go for two streets of value with the ace-king, and I'm not saying that they would be correct in doing so or questioning the wisdom of of doing it your way, but I think that it's worth at least examining that some players would have the approach of saying, well, I don't want to like run into quads or a seven and end up losing my whole stack, so is there a case to be made for pot control in this spot? I mean, I, I don't think there is. 
Oh, there is a case to be made, obviously, but I disagree with that case because you are at a tough table and you need to try to get value for your hand, which is almost always going to be good. And you can get called by worse. So to me, those are the criteria. And don't forget, I just been caught bluffing against Ankush, which is somewhat relevant. I mean, I think that it wasn't. It was clear that I wasn't like never bluffing, and it's very easy to over bluff in spots. I mean, that's actually I think the more valid uh, case for checking back Ace King, which I'm sure you can do some of the time. That's totally fine. But I think the valid case for it is more that uh, villain might over bluff more so than. Uh, because it try to get you off, like, hands that it looks like you have, like, queens and jacks. Yeah, or even tens. Yeah, Yeah. so I think, like, that if you that inducing over bluffs is actually the best reason to try to check back there. Not because your hand's not good enough. Right. Because, I don't know, like, I, I, I've, I feel like you start trying to think too much about stuff like that when you have such a good hand with a low SPR... You're going to be, there's been a lot of debate on Twitter lately and just in general, like about exploits versus game theory and intuition versus game theory. And I think at some point you can get to a point where you're thinking so hard about exploits, um, you can burn your brain out. And uh, in the end of the day, to play at a high level of poker, you do need to know theory. So yes, you should think about exploits, but not so much that your emotions and your brain are constantly tied up with like, oh my God, should I have checked back ace-king there? Like, how could I have gotten ace-king in in this spot? Like, suddenly you're just creating an emotional roller coaster for yourself where like, you're always feeling like you did something wrong. Yeah, but... I think that that's like, there's so many ways to be hard on yourself in poker and I think that that is a way that a lot of people overdo. Absolutely. And discounting um, the fact that this hand doesn't work out in your favor, um, just looking at it theoretically... Uh, I I think some players might say I want to get more calls from Kenny when he doesn't have a king. And so that might be another reason to check back the turn. Assuming Kenny will check to us three times. When he has something like, I don't know, pocket nines, right? That's certainly in his raise and call rather uh-huh. than raise and re-raise. Yeah. Range, right? So nines is a hand that Kenny could have. He might be curious enough to call you twice, but not three times, which, you know, so I think some players might look at it that way, like to make sure like when I check, when I bet the flop, check back the turn and bet again on the river, I can get two calls. But if I bet, 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 he's going to fold on the second bet when he doesn't have at least a king. Well, okay, my argument for that is like in constructing my range, why wouldn't I do that with king queen then? Because king queen's a way better hand for that because... I one of the the hands I really want to call down the three streets with with ace king is king queen. So when I have king queen, I'm not targeting that hand anymore. So now it's like really good for those other stuff that you mentioned. I mean, of course, the negative of king queen there is like obviously it's not as good as ace king because it doesn't block aces, which he could easily have, and he could even have ace king. So I'm not saying king queen is as good. I just think for that role that you described. King Queen feels like the star, like knocking, <laughs> knocking on the door, like cast me. Yeah, I like it. I like it. <laughs> and I think again, uh, you know, I'm not. I don't mean to argue that you did the wrong thing or that I disagree with your decision. I like to look at sh- could we look at the, another approach to this hand? And my opinion of the SPR of five is that it's not that low. 
I mean, I think with an SPR of three or less, I would certainly get it, probably want to get in with just about any king. I mean, assuming that I'm going to three bet some of my king queens, then I would be very happy to get it in here. I think with SPR of five, I want to have a little bit tighter range for trying to get my whole stack in. And I think ace king would be in that range. So I actually agree with your play, but I did want to look at it because SPR of five isn't, to me, it's not that small, especially if you're going. We're, we're talking about SPR five means that you would bet what percentage of the flop. I bet like thirty five percent on the flop, and, and then, then another two thirds, and that sets up about pot. It sets a pot on the yeah. river, yeah. So that's three, one small bet, and then two large bets, basically. Yeah. So yeah. again, we need to be pretty sure that Kenny's going to call with worse on the turn and river. Uh, with a good number of hands that would uh, that would not be beating us, which I don't think very many hands can beat us. You know, obviously, 8-7, seven, 7-6, seven, pocket aces, as you mentioned, he could have and play in a trappy way, but you block that with your ace. So, yeah, I think it's right. I like your play. So what happens on the turn? So the turn is a nine, and... It's funny I mentioned pocket nines, because I... <laughs> It's so uh, it's so hard for him to like hit his full house on the turn. So we're not going to worry about that any more than we're going to worry about quads on the flop, right? Exactly. Yeah. You can't get paranoid yeah. about stuff. No way. Yeah. So check. I I bet the intended ten k. Mm-hmm. He calls, and then the river is a jack, which uh, he checks to me. Um, and uh, of course, this is like a really terrible card because now King Jack gets there, right? Uh, so and, yeah, we don't like the jack, and that's like I mean I, I don't think he's calling my three bet with King Jack, but King Jack suited clearly. So like yeah, it's not it's not good, and also now King Queen is maybe more likely to fold because I guess like I could well, I don't know if King Queen would be King Queen's more likely to fold. Can we talk about King Jack so, for a second? Yeah, you said a second ago you don't think he's calling with King Jack offsuit. Uh, pre-flop. I don't think so, but I could be wrong. Why? Okay. What do you think? Well, I, I don't know. I was. I, I haven't really played with Kenny. I've only watched him on TV. Um, I'm inclined to think that he would call, especially at this stack depth. Yeah, maybe. With I that mean, hand. And I was wondering what you thought his worst hand to call. Do you, I mean, so in other words, if he's not calling you pre-flop with King Jack offsuit, then is the bottom of his calling range something like King Jack suited? No, because, I mean, suited hands are obviously way better. I mean, like, king nine suited, king ten suited. Oh, okay, so he's calling with those like, hands. That kind of stuff, right. yeah. I think All lots right. of suited combos. But, okay. Yeah, I mean, king jack off, I kind of assume he'd fold, but, I mean, I don't know, like, for sure. But, like... It's so yeah. often dominated. Like, yeah. I think he should fold king jack probably against you, but I'm not sure. I mean, I did make it 4K. I mean, I could see if I made it, like, you know, 3400 or something. Yeah, where he's priced in and he has to see a flop and be careful. Yeah, I, I think with a 4K bet, I, I, I was not... Let's put it this way. I wasn't worried about King Jack. Mm-hmm. I was actually just thinking about King Jack suited. Like, I, I if, if he had King Jack, I would... And, like, I made my decision. Like, if I decided to jam and he had King Jack and I was wrong about that, I wouldn't even feel it felt bad. Yeah. Well, then, if we take that into consideration, then it kind of strengthens the case for not wanting to get our stack all the way in because if he doesn't have those combos of King Jack... With which to call our value bets all the way through them. We're really only targeting King Queen, correct? Well, King Jack suited, King, King Ten suited. suited. Right, yeah, the suited kings, but right. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah there, yeah, and those are there, there's a reasonable number of combos there. 
But yeah, I think it, it tightens that argument up a little bit. Maybe even King 8 suited. So basically I, uh, well, I thought for a while because I was like my whole plan for the hand would, was to to bet, bet jam. But with this jack in the river, I realized that it would be like a, you know, god-awful jam, um, especially in practice. So I checked behind and uh, he had nines. So... You know, I got lucky actually that the turn the river was a jack because if it was a brick, I was intending to jam, and uh, yeah, see that's positivity. I was lucky that you didn't <laughs> in lose this hand. at all. Yeah, I was lucky in this hand that the river was a jack. Right. Um, so he binks the turn and traps. And maybe as an exploit, honestly, somebody mentioned this to me when I told him this the story. Like, I'm sure in theory he should check, but like it's kind of an interesting idea for him to just jam the river. Or bet, not even jam the river, just like bet the river, leave the river or something. Yeah. I don't know. It, the thing is, I could be bluffing also. So obviously when you check, you get bluffs in. So it's, I think in retrospect, it's really easy to say that. But in, in game, you learn, you kind of like, yeah, it makes he wants sense to, to check. Keep, yeah. He wants to keep all your ace, queen. Yeah. And, and any other hand that you think you can't win with without bluffing. Because he can't get value from those hands by making even a small bet on the river. So, I mean, he's got to feel like... And he's correct. Like, I think generally when you take such a strong uh, line pre-flop, you do want to continue with a lot of your range, especially on a king 7-7 seven, seven flop. You know, that's, it's just, a, it's it's so hard for him to have anything on that flop. So you want to continue barreling. So he's probably correct to check there a lot because you should have nothing a lot. Yeah, yeah. I uh I was thinking to start I was thinking about the barreling hands and uh and the SPR being low so it's like hard for him to have like 10-8 suited cuz he probably shouldn't float it right Maybe if I make like a tiny tiny bet on the flop like he can float 10-8 suited or queen 10 suited with a backdoor but I think even like the 35% size that I chose he's going to fold right Sure so Yeah like right like queen 10 suited right. which makes an open ender like I I think they all have to fold right Exactly. I would. So. I would. I, I mean. I don't know. I. It's thirty. I think. Like again, it's all about the precision of the sizing. Like if that I bet like small bet on if the I flop. bet like if I bet like twenty two hundred on the flop, like you would probably call like a queen ten suited. But like just, I worse if a single raised pot obviously is going to call up, and a three bet pot with an SPR of five, he can't get away with calling hands that are that bad. Right. You know, he probably wants to have like the ace jack suited, right? So that he has it over hit as well. Yeah. So when you bet a third of the pot. Uh, you know, you're offering him, like, what is that, a four to one on a call? So he needs to have some kind of equity. It's not like you're betting 10% of the pot or something. Exactly, yeah. 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 So uh, so that, that, that's good, at least. That means that he doesn't have, like, those random hands in the, in the river, like, queen 10 suited or 10 8 suited. But, you know, maybe he could. I, I, I don't think so, though. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that was a hand, and I found it very interesting. I was, like, upset after because I lost so many chips and it was such an important tournament. So it's really important to cool down in those spots. And I mean, I was actually so heated that it took me a while to check check back because I was like kind of like just like upset, you know, like I try not to get emotional. But weirdly enough, I think I was upset because my plan was to bet bet jam on most runouts. And I was like just upset that I didn't get to do that. And that Jack ruined it, but in fact, the Jack saved it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really make any sense. I guess it's just fun to put chips in the pot. That's why, like, part of the reason we play poker. So <laughs> yeah. I, I 
Can um, I quote you on that? Yeah, I play exactly. poker because it's fun to put chips in the it pot. Is. Absolutely. <laughs> so I can't like, disagree, Jen. You do not get to put chips in the pot. So interesting things about this hand, though. Are, there's more to talk about, right? Even though this is a spot with narrow ranges, you still have to ask yourself, well, the the min value hand, if it's not ace-king, it's aces. And it's funny because aces is, like, so much better than ace-king. It's, like, one pip up, but it's, like, a million times better because... Mm-hmm. Now he can have ace-king. Right. Yeah, that gives him another calling hand. Yeah. That, yeah, that you can get value from. And then that makes uh, the bet-bet-jam strategy, to me, so much clearer. Like, I think your hand is just barely good enough with the SPR of five to go for getting your stack in. Like, I don't think I would do it with king-queen. I think I would do it with ace-king and definitely with aces. Yeah, but all these all these hands in a three-bet pot are so different from each other. You of know? course, yeah. yeah. That's the thing. They're all like... They sound similar, but they're really not. They're not. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's a million times better. It's just way better to have aces. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's way worse to have king queen. Exactly. Yeah. And in terms of bluffing, there, like, it's funny because the best hand has got to be ace nine suited because he can't have nines as much and mm-hmm. he can't have aces as much that trapped. So it's like perfect. Even yeah. though that's a good example of turning a pair into a bluff because I think a lot of people might pick something like ace queen. But ace-nine suited is a way better candidate because ace-queen, like, he, let's face it, especially in the live environment, he's probably going to fold king-queen a lot mm-hmm. to the jam, especially in that jack river. Therefore, you don't really want ace-queen as much as you want ace-nine suited. So just really interesting because also, like, not just, I guess, nine-seven suited too or something, but he he might not flat that pre. But yeah, it's like, it it's really like a nut bluff candidate. Yeah. So as a chess player, I feel like hands like this I love because it's like, it's really like you can actually find some truths about poker from like these narrow range, three bet pots, like that, yeah, I mean, there might be some people who play things so out of line off the equilibrium that the truths don't hold hold true anymore, mm-hmm. but then you can compile a whole new list of truths that are also really great. So it's like almost like the end game in chess you can see everything. You can visualize everything. Whereas in other spots, both players can have so many different hands that you have to like chunk things in order to come up with a solution. Yeah. In order or, or to, to figure out what to play and use a combination of your intuition and your study and your chunking abilities. That's what to me is so fascinating that it is that combination. Yeah. It's not a computer solver. It's real life. And so we need to also combine our intuition in there, Always. which to me is what makes the game so much more fun than if we could just play a computer simulation of it. And I think that's the, that's where a lot of people get it wrong, though. They think that studying game theory is like an anti-intuition, but it's not mm-hmm. really. I think it just it can enhance your intuition for some people because it allows you to... Uh, think quicker and chunk things together like i personally have never i think we talked about this before like even though i'm like a chess champion i uh i think i don't think i think super super fast i think i think well and you think a lot faster than i do my brain hurts from trying to keep up with your brilliance well thank you (laughs) i really need a i need a a breather (laughs) no i don't think think fast believe me Depends on who you're comparing the speed at which you think uh, with. You know, that's that's what it comes down to. There's always someone who thinks faster than we do, right? I don't know. I mean, I work I work on things in general in chess and poker to try to think faster. Like, I'm not kidding. I made this I made this video about SPRs and like bet bet jam structures because 
I felt like I was reinventing the wheel every time I sat down at the poker table trying to figure out how much to bet on the flap turn and river to get it all in. And like the arithmetic was going too slow. So I was like, this has just got to stop. I need to do this faster, like instantly so that I can think about other stuff, like whether the guy has a timing tell or, you know, like whether they have King Jack off in this situation. You know, I cannot be thinking about this anymore. This is ridiculous. Right. You don't and that's want to be what I mean. Like I'm down in that sort of, yeah. That's the kind of thing I mean. I feel like some people are a little faster at that, you right. know? Yeah. So the shorthand is if my SPR is five. Then betting a third, two thirds, and pot gets me all in. That's about right. Yeah, okay. I think so. It's the, Ish. The, I mean, we're we're like yeah, a little. But. Yeah, I mean, you you know, obviously, the harder part is in game figuring out exactly how much the effective stack is sometimes in the pot because you know a lot of times it's like some kind of weird number like ninety five hundred or something like it wasn't the spot. Yeah. So you know you're not going to be absolutely precise. Right. And the people who are absolutely precise and just have this like wizard like number sense i I think i think it's an edge it's not that significant i don't think it's like some you know edge that's gonna like you know make them like the super elite you know christoph or fedor halts but i think that it's it's useful Mm -hmm. it's useful and i i don't have that but i'm not hung up about it i'm just thinking like having that skill is cool to have of you course know? it is, yeah. Like just being able to look at somebody's stack and instantly know exactly how much they have. It's a skill. That's also – it's a skill and it's useful to have. Does it mean that you can't be a great poker player if you don't have it? No, but it's like there's all these like little micro skills and you're trying to like accumulate as many of them as you can. Yeah. Like a video game, right? Yeah, sure, sure. So now that 2019 is off to this tremendous start and you get to start off by spending time in the Bahamas and working on your poker game and your tan and everything else, uh, what's next for you? Well, next up for me is I'll probably do a couple of things at the Borgata. And so the Borgata has a series that starts uh, at the end of the month. Exactly. And then I've got um, a lot of stuff going up, going on with chess again. Um, there's going to be a, a women's po- a women's chess tournament in uh, St. Louis. It's an elite women's tournament. They have actually never had one like that before. So that's really cool because it's really big for me to promote women in chess because I think that there's so many skills I can get from it, like uh, confidence, problem solving. Uh, just in general, I think girls and women are sometimes trained to like look outward instead of just focus and think for themselves and – it's really important, especially in our like insane media crazed world where everybody is vying for your attention to take time to think things through on your own. And chess is just like the perfect learning ground for that. Mm. So yeah. I'm doing a, I'm doing broadcasting for that tournament and I'm on the organizing committee. And then I'm also hosting a new podcast myself actually called Ladies Night with U.S. Chess Women where I'm going to be interviewing, like, female chess champions and leaders. Well, we might be able to find some listeners for your new podcast if chess is the new crypto. Yeah, that's right. Actually, the girl I mentioned earlier, Alexandra Botez, who um, submitted one of the finalists, she's my first guest. So Terrific. Well, um, Jennifer, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today. I hope that you've enjoyed it as much as I did. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's always so inspiring to talk to you, Clayton, and I'm so excited for the comedy show tonight and to find out who, by the time this is up, we're going to have a Poker Stars Players Champion. I know. That is kind of exciting. Uh, so, yeah. Um, how can we watch you? You mentioned your Instagram. What is it? Instagram at Jen Shahadi and Twitter at Jen Shahadi. Sh- spell Jen Shahadi for us. J-E-N Shahadi 
S-H-A-H-A-D-E. All right. Somebody the other day said you can't spell Shahadi without ha-ha. <laughs> That's true. Uh, they're not wrong. Uh, you also, I'm, ready, I'm ready for my stand-up game you, you also can't spell it without hottie. So what does that tell us? <laughs> but that's actually not true. Unless you, unless you spell hottie with H-A-D-E. I do. I do. I'm very bad at spelling. Uh-huh. I want to thank you again, uh, Jen Shahadi, for joining me today. And uh, enjoy the rest of your time in the Bahamas. And so for everyone here at the PCA and, of course, all of us here at Tournament Poker Edge. I want to thank you all for listening. I'm Clayton Fletcher, and best of luck in the new year. I want to hold them like they do in Texas plays. Fold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me.